Hello, this is Leslie Garth of Tensor, and this is Law to Fact. Today I'm speaking with Tony Iliacostas about entertainment law and IP. In this episode, I talk with Tony Iliacostas, Rights and Clearance Manager for ABC News, an adjunct professor of law at NYU Law School, where he teaches entertainment and IP law. What an invigorating and exciting conversation. Tony shares his tips for breaking into entertainment law field, which he did in sort of an unconventional way. Before that, we talk about an entertainment law issue that I find fascinating, posthumous personality rights. So this is a great conversation, particularly for those of you who want to pursue a career in sports or entertainment law. By the way, after the semester break, we'll be back in full force. If you have a topic you want to discuss or a professor with whom you'd like us to speak, you can reach us at lawdefact at gmail.com. Here's my conversation with Tony Iliacostas. Thank you so much for um, taking the time to speak with me. I'm so excited to have you here. You do such fascinating work in intellectual property and working for a major network television station. Um, but I know that prior to that, you dealt with licensing. And I wanted to just start by talking about a case that I teach and many of my students have read. And that case is called Martin Luther King versus Heritage Products. And in that case, Heritage Products was licensing a Martin Luther King bobblehead, which just saying Martin Luther King bobblehead is wrong enough. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm wondering if you, you know, when I read your your bio, I just was wondering, do you have any comments that could speak to that? Because it is a case that's in the case book. So I I don't have any direct knowledge of that, of having dealt with that specific suit. But I will tell you that um, that case, which I also love to death, along with uh, Einstein, uh, the uh, HUJ versus General Motors case, two of mm -hmm. my favorite personality rights cases. Um, and of course, the classic uh, Comedy 3 versus Sadero, uh, iconic. Oh, yeah, that's a good one, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. iconic. It's kind of yes, iconic yes. of the guts. Uh, I, I have found that uh, dead celebrity estates are so protective of mm -hmm. their intellectual property. And, and I'm not just talking about the personality rights of the dead celebrity that they happen to represent. I'm going into the trademarks associated with that dead celebrity, any copyrights, things of that sort. So generally speaking, I think the culture, not just specific with, you know, the Martin Luther King Jr. state or the Einstein estate or any other state that I had uh, worked with at the time when I was at Greenlight. I think, I, I think generally speaking, there is this overarching notion that, you know, their legacy lives on even post-mortem. So they, to the extent that they could try to protect in whatever way possible, they want to be forceful in how, you know, how they deal, do uh, get their money, how deals are done, and they want to do it in an extremely kosher way. So I think the uh, Martin Luther King case is certainly indicative of those elements. And uh, I personally, as I mean, even before law school, I, I've had knowledge of that and I had, I found it to be highly fascinating. So, yeah, so it's interesting because this is an area of law that um, a specific area of law that people might practice. And that deals with kind of defending or, or maintaining the reputation of a celebrity who has passed along. And I guess I ask you two questions. The first is, or one question, two ways. Do you feel that the estate is more concerned with preserving the, the dead celebrity, for lack of a better word, identity, <laughs> 
for financial reasons, because if they can kind of keep their brand, it's going to help them make more money? Or do you think it's out of a love for the person? Or do you think it's both? Um, I, I think if you were to talk to a lot of esta- uh, estates heart to heart, it's more on a personal level. They they mm-hmm. really treasure and love the 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 indelible mark that these celebrities, these deceased people have left in culture and the arts and society at large. So they certainly love the financial aspect of it. And, you know, it's a nice incentive, but I I think, I think if you were to dig down and sort of get to know a lot of these people, um, they really aren't greedy or at least facially we, you know, people think, you know, estates like the Michael Jackson estate or, um, Prince or, you know, any of these other legacy, you know, driven type of estates are out to just make every pretty, pretty penny that they can. But at the end of the day, I mean, they're just doing their jobs. They're just trying to protect whatever is left of that person. And, you know, there, there is, you know, as is the case in intellectual property, you know, there is the, the, the clock starts ticking the moment they start, you know, they're deceased. So, you know, the, the unique thing about personality rights is, those terms vary depending on where, where in this, in the United States, that person died. So, you know, we, they, they're cognizant that the, the clock is ticking, but at the same time, they, you know, they want to do everything that they can to continue that celebration of the wondrous person that, you know, he or she represents, whether it's, you know, an iconic musician or an iconic artist, so on and so forth. Why do you say the clock stops, starts, starts ticking? Well, it's because, the the way personality rights are you know work well here generally speaking personality rights you Leslie myself the viewers out there we all have name image and likenesses that we are endowed with from birth and if we happen to become famous <laughs> we uh, want to go about taking efforts to protect those names images and likenesses so um, you often see this actually in the sports world. Actually, it's quite relevant in the sports world now, specifically with collegiate athletes, where their names are being are, are the face of athletic wear, drink wear, uh, video games, even you know what have you. And so there is an opportunity for these for people to monetize off of their name, image, and likeness. And this has been deeply entrenched in case law for decades about the ways and the methodology of how one can monetize off their name, image, and likeness. I mean, the, there's a case, if, uh, if any viewers have listened to it, uh, Midler versus Ford, uh, iconic case about how Bette Midler refused to allow her, 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 the voice rights to be used for a song that was being used in connection with um, Lincoln Mercury, if I'm not mistaken. And so- Is that the he, anticipation? That wasn't anticipation. No, it wasn't. No, that was another one. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it, it actually, and I think it was called. So you think you can? Uh, uh, so do you want to dance? I think some, something like that. Oh, or, do you want to dance? Do you, you want to dance? dance? I hold right, my right. hand. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we, I won't sing for karaoke right now. That's what it is. <laughs> yeah. So she rejected it, and so Lincoln Ford called her backup singer, and she replicated the song exactly how Bette Miller sounded, and the Kate and the court found in the Seventh Circuit that. It that at the end of the day, even imitating one's voice is an extension of their personality rights. So, personality rights is is truly a unique area of IP because it's it it's it's almost like it has nothing to do with works of authorship or source identification or keeping secrets or anything of that sort. This is truly about one's identity and how they can monetize off of that 
identity, whether that comes in their name, their image and likeness. And so unfortunately, the way personality rights work here in the US, um, there isn't any federal regulation. So when I mentioned earlier about the clock starting to tick, you know, we have to go off of what the what each state rules as an adequate term for postmodern personality rights, if they even have postmodern personality right legislation in place. So for example, wow. New York just passed it. And for New York, postmodern personality rights last for 40 years after the death of a person. In Florida, it's 40 years after the death of a person. But meanwhile, in California, it's 70 years. The best place to die is actually in Indiana, which is 100 years after the death hmm. of a person. But meanwhile, New Jersey adopts the common law, has no active legislation that sets out what that term is. Minnesota is exactly the same thing. In fact, in Minnesota, uh, state legislatures scrambled to try to uh, get legislation passed on postmortem personality rights after Prince died. And it turned out that they were never able to pass it because it would have interfered with existing right of privacy law that existed in Minnesota. And it would have led to long-term ramifications that at the end of the day, it just wasn't worth rushing for the sake of having a bill out there that happened to be called the Prince Act. It, it just didn't make sense. So that's, that, I mean, we can go on, but that my, I have such a beef about personality rights. And this is, this is, we should go on. This is so interesting to me. I just, I have another question about it. So if I die in New Jersey, let's say I was a celebrity. As my listeners know, my dream. Um, <laughs> I was in one movie, I have an IFTV. Um, but if I die in, in my home state of New Jersey, if I die there, then can my then anyone can sell my likeness after the day I die, or it doesn't revert to the estate because so they don't have any years? How does that, that work? That, that's an excellent question. Um in the case in that case, um what has happened historically is if there is either a, a state that does not have existing law in black and white or um, has never dealt with it, it's essentially a case of first impression. What traditionally happens is the common law standard is that once postmortem personality rights last for 50 years after the death of a person. So mm -hmm. in the case of actually, in, since you mentioned New Jersey, the uh, there's a decision in Ray Presley which dealt with Elvis Presley's estate. And in that, uh, in that decision, uh, administrative decision, it ruled that even though New Jersey did not have in black and white, something that let that New Jersey legislators passed that set the standard for postmortem personality rights, they did say the court did rule that 50 years was an adequate term to allow the estate to reap the benefit of still monetizing off of Elvis Presley's name, image, and likeness. And so that's been the standard. And HUJ versus General Motors, before the decision was remanded, uh, originally ruled that Einstein's personality rights lasted for 50 years after his death. He died in 1955. So that meant that the clock started uh, ticking in 1955, and therefore his rights expired essentially, you know, based on that decision in 2005. However, like I said, that decision was remanded. But interestingly, the the decision that uh, the following um, uh, the following decision that was vacated uh, that that vacated the earlier ruling, the judge was very harsh about um, was very harsh about how the uh, you know how, how to lay out the, the, you know, the, the playing field for postmortem personality rights in New Jersey and potentially at large. And in so many words, he said, if New Jersey ha clearly has a problem with how postmortem personality rights are, and there isn't any clear answer, it's really up to the legislatures to, to put their heads together and get something done. 
But that decision happened in 20, in 2012, when originally Einstein's personality rights uh, expired. The estate, the estate and um, GM had settled. Part of the settlement was to vacate the decision that ruled his personality rights expired. The judge said, okay, I'll vacate it, but this is my, my thought. And he was very honest and candid. And guess what? Uh, it's now nine years later. New Jersey no, legislature has still not done a single right, damn thing. Right, it's pretty, right, pretty remarkable. Right, right. You know, that's, that's actually, that's a good lesson for law students too, is the idea that the, the you know, it's, and it's most basic, the courts deal with common law. And quite often, instead of resolving an issue and creating further common law, they'll throw it to the legislature, which is the, you know, the legislation of the people and has more teeth to any decision they make. I mean, really, the role of the courts is to interpret the legislatures. And if the legislators have enacted, then there's no legislation to interpret. Um, gosh, I could talk about this forever, too. I want to get to the other, but I have two more questions, and then I'll stop. Elvis Presley is going to, in six years, his rights are going to dissipate, right? It's 50 years he died in 1977. Can I then make an Elvis Presley bobblehead and sell it? Uh, that's a tricky question also, because you know, you would think, in fact, yes, but you have to now look at the other areas of IP. So, for example, are there any registered copyrights? Ideally, his songs. That means you can't use any Elvis Presley songs. Likely, those are owned by the record label, maybe some by the estate, depends on who the main players are. Also, ways that estates deal with the, you know, the expiration date, what happens when the rights expire, they often register trademarks associated with those celebrity names. So there's a good chance that if you were to go search for Elvis Presley in the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, you might see it in collectibles, i.e., bobbleheads. So, sorry, Leslie, I don't, th I don't think you're just <laughs> quite there yet. <laughs> I can't get rich on that. That's a bummer. All right, I'm going to leave my second question because it's more important also to talk about your career. So, you have the two best jobs, for lack of a better word, that anyone wants out of law school, which is you are working in entertainment law and you're a professor. I mean, one enough is, you know, the best gig in the world. You got them both. So can you tell us a little bit about your trajectory, what you're doing now and, and, and how you got into this area of the law and how you're, you're kind of staying in it and moving on yeah. to professorship too? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I went to law school uh, knowing that I wanted to become a sports agent and I had seen Jerry Maguire. I thought that was, <laughs> that was the way to go. Um, and I was an undergrad at Fordham University, and I had studied communications and media studies. So I figured sports, media, entertainment, like that whole embellishment of, you know, that trio would kind of work in tandem with a potential career in the future. But I really had my eyes set on doing some type of aspect of labor law, but specific to representing athletes. And then I quickly realized that being a sports agent is not as all, it's not as fun as it's all made out to be, uh, pretty cutthroat, pretty conniving. I had seen maybe two ESPN 30 for 30 documentaries that is essentially convinced me that being a sports agent wasn't made out, uh, wasn't made for me, at least mm -hmm. me, the person. Um, it was the dotted line and uh, um, broke. It exceptional, exceptional documentaries. And I realized, you know, it's not, it's not the, the, the field that I want to go into because what if I can't get my foot in the door? What if I try to, what if I trot around the entire country go to athletic departments that have robust football, basketball, baseball programs, and I can't secure an athlete to represent. Um, what if I get poached by other, you know, my clients get poached by other big name agencies. I really had a lot of fears. And 
at the end of the day, I thought big picture. I want to start a family. I wanted a wife, kids, a family. I wanted to have some semblance of normalcy and mm-hmm. being a sports agent from how it seemed wasn't made for me. So I took a step back and I went back to square one and I really said, okay, what can I do then in the sports world? And so during my first year of law school at New York law school, I had attended a sports law symposium and, uh, there was a, there was a panel, you know, typical in these types of symposia to, uh, you know, how to break into the sports industry and uniformly across the board, the panelists said that you have to do something unique and creative in order to break into the industry. And so I, I thought, you know what, that's a great idea. Why don't I start a blog? But then I realized that there were a lot of written blogs out there that were related to sports law. So I said, what if I do a video blog instead, given that I had the media and communications background mm-hmm. and I have edit, video editing experience, this is as unique as it could get as a sports, as a law student, period. Not, not just even specific to the sports law genre. And can I interrupt for just a second? Because yeah. I am actually a big proponent of this. I teach social media law. And one of the things I make my students do is blog posts. Because I think that writing blog posts gets you clients once you graduate, but gets you a voice and shows your commitment and dedication while you're in law school. So it's interesting to hear you say that. And I just want to give another plug for that, that these are the kinds of things one can do in addition to grades and law review. I'm a big proponent of law review to really kind of define who you are and show other law firms, what you're capable of that doesn't just reflect the grades you got. So I'm thrilled to hear that you said that because I really think that's really important. And to that point, I did everything as this is this was as homegrown of, of an enterprise as you could have ever asked for. I wrote my own scripts. I did my own research. I filmed myself. I had a little Kodak ZI6, which was the competitor to the flip cameras back in the early 2010s. Mm-hmm. Um, I edited all my own clips. I had an iPad that I had used as a teleprompter. So I did my own stage setup. Um, I It even got to the point where I went on Zazzle.com. I used my logo and I printed water bottles, hoodies, and t-shirts. Wow. I would go to school wearing it. And listen, I wasn't a gunner in law school, but there did come a point where I would put my water bottle and I would wear my law and batting order uh, hoodie and I would raise my hand. And oh, by the way, you would see the logo on my website. And actually, I didn't realize I didn't give the name of the plot. So it was actually called law and batting order. It was a playoff playoff of law and order. And I love oh, clever, so clever, clever law and batting order. And I ran it for all my time in law school. And I interviewed a bevy of different people. And it was honestly one of the most refreshing experiences that I had because, you know, for me, I I worked very hard in law school, but I wanted to differentiate myself and I wanted to, I didn't want to be the cookie cutter model of a law Mm -hmm. student. I really Mm -hmm. wanted to separate myself from the pack. And Mm -hmm. frankly, that was, that was essentially the conduit that allowed me to get to where I am now. Um, I was in my, you know, I, I had tried to apply to every single sports law internship known to man during my first year and second year of of law school. Didn't really luck out. Really hard, really hard. Very truly competitive. And and Mm -hmm. for any students that are listening to this, trust me, if you're having trouble getting an internship in this field, I had trouble getting into this field. So it's, it's a, it's not just you. It was, it's a universal thing, but um, I, I, I didn't, I didn't relent. I kept going. And sure enough, during on my birthday of all days, April 5th, 2013, I'm sitting in a uh, sanctuary for families when I was uh, volunteering at domestic violence clinic. And this I is have, after you graduated or no, this, still this is while I'm a 2L actually. So okay, this is while I'm okay. a 2L. and uh, there was an opportunity at uh, ABC news to intern at the rights and clearances department. And I figured, you know, this is a great gateway because 
one in you know i had been doing all these blogs on sports uh, on uh, lawn batting order and i found that intellectual property was the avenue for me to pursue i loved it that much that i wanted to really seriously consider it as a profession and two i figured given that i had so much media production experience you know uh doing lawn batting order and also i had interned at cbs news while i was at fordham university i figured you know this is a great great avenue for me to get into so i applied I went through a two hour interview and I got the internship. And basically after that, after that, um, yeah, after that internship, uh, well, I had interned uh, before I go further, I had interned uh, during the summer after 2L and then all throughout my 3L year. And basically after I graduated, I went back to ABC News as a freelancer and I worked there for a about- Freelance lawyer? Uh, uh, well, so it was a free, freelance rights and clearance associate only because that was okay. what was available at the time. Okay. And, um, and it was seven and a half months, but I, I consciously knew that I had to look for more full-time, full-time, uh, work in the intellectual property entertainment space. And so I kept plugging away, working hard. And sure enough, I found that there was an internship or so rather there was a business affairs manager opportunity at Greenlight, which is the, uh, the, uh, place of employment that I mentioned earlier, where I represented a bunch of dead celebrities and did really awesome work representing Martin Luther King Jr., Thomas Edison, Albert Einstein. I was there for two and a half years, uh, really honed in and perfected my craft and knowledge of uh, personality rights, specifically postmodern personality rights. And then uh, a unique opportunity uh, came up for me to return to ABC News, this time as manager of rights and clearances, essentially second in command of the department. Wow. And uh, I was hired in uh, July of 2017, and I've basically been there ever since, uh, working on a bunch of different news projects, uh, daily news projects, but long-form projects. Uh, I just did uh, a, the, a wonderful production for the 50th anniversary of Walt Disney World, um, but I've worked on a bunch of other ABC News Hulu projects, Nightline projects. Oh, yeah. So give us, give, us a, give us an example of, of something that you've done. Like, ex- like exactly when you worked on ABC, like what exactly did you do? All right. So I'm going to bring the best of both worlds, right? Uh, okay. Intellectual property and then postmodern, well, copyright, which I'm good at and uh, postmodern personality rights. Okay. So I, uh, I worked on a special with Marvel Entertainment. Um, it was a work for hire project uh, for the, uh, for basically it was a, it was a one year celebration of Stanley's legacy. It was after, a year after he had passed away. So we did a whole yeah. <laughs> hour special on Stan Lee. We right. licensed his postmodern personality rights with Power Entertainment. They had a bunch mm-hmm. of assets that we had also licensed for the show. Mm-hmm. We also had to work in tandem with Marvel Studios because it's an interfamily Walt Disney Company entity on securing the rights to a lot of the film clips that were used, a lot of the Marvel Cinematic Universe clips. Um, had to work with talent agents to secure the rights or get permission to use um, a lot of the uh, celebrities that were shown, the Marvel celebrities. So Chris Hemsworth, Paul Rudd, Taika Waititi. I mean, I could go on. Um, we, uh, we had to work with our production team to verify how much material we were using and report that usage back to a lot of these uh, entities internally. And, you know, and then of course, working with our other normal vendors like Getty, AP, Shutterstock to secure the other photo rights that we would have normally used anyway. And interestingly, production had filmed um, like a memorial celebration service that they had for Stan Lee the year prior. And so we 
we had the the actual assets, but we were working with Marvel Entertainment to basically pick out, okay, we want to use these clips for this part of the show and these clips for this part of the show. So we essentially worked together on the creative aspect of it. But my department was mainly assigned to licensing all the third-party material that was used in the show. And what I tell people for this program or for any program that I work work on is, you know, not many people think that it's exciting or fun to draw up a contract because it's a two-dimensional black and white piece. Yeah, of I was going to say, it sounds like contract law, yeah. Right, it's it's like all legalese. It has mm-hmm. weapon warranties, indemnification, a, a bunch of other loyal pay provisions. But at the end of the day, you don't know how wonderful it is to go home to tell my friends on Instagram, on Facebook, hey, go check out the Stan Lee special or go check out the Walt Disney World 50th anniversary show. And to know that not just my friends, but millions of people around the world are watching that that show. And for me, you know, yeah, I, I, I often thought that correspondents and anchors, and even producers, other people that work directly with the talent are the storytellers, but everybody that works in this enterprise is a storyteller. And for me, the mere fact that I licensed photos and videos for consideration for some type of license fee and, and you know, help secure that that license that to me is part of that storytelling process. And it gives me such pleasure to know that a piece of video or that photo or anything that I clear makes it on a show and I'm telling that story. It truly is, it's, it gives me goosebumps just talking about it right now. You know, that is the best way to describe loitering as a whole because I yeah. think part of the frustration for mid-level career lawyers is that they see themselves as back office support staff in so many ways. They're writing the contract so that the other people can execute the deal. You know, that kind of a thing, at least in, in um, commercial law, I should say. Yeah. But you're right. You're, you're, you are one of the very important cogs. It's, there, there's, I don't know if you ever saw the movie, The Devil Wears Prada, but there's oh, a movie. Yeah. I mean, okay, so The Devil Wears Prada, I'm going to bring up an analogy. Um, Andy, who is the protagonist, says, I don't really care about this shirt. And then Meryl Streep says, or the color of this shirt, Bella Street says, this shirt is employing people in, you know, who can't make a living. So they get to sew it. And this shirt, and she walks through all the different people who benefit from the production of a new color shirt. Yep. So um, I, that's just a wonderful way for entering law student lawyers and mid-level lawyers to think about it. And, you know, it's just, I teach contract law. That's kind of one of the things that I teach regularly. And it is, can tend to be, you know, you talk about conditions and you talk about indemnification and you talk about unconscionability. But what I try to impart to my students is these are people's lives. And that's exactly what you're saying. Like you are dealing with people's lives. You may not be in a courtroom arguing to a jury, but you're dealing with people's lives and and, And and people's enjoyment. Yeah. And actually to that point, I'm so glad you mentioned that because like this often comes up even when I deal with standard licensing uh, with like everyday people that have never looked at a contract a day in their life, one of the things that they often realize, well, let me take a step back for a moment. They realize that they have precious intellectual property that is beneficial to not just us at ABC News, but could be beneficial to NBC, CBS, Fox, CNN, whoever is going to help tell that story. So they're, they're aware that the interest is there. But one of the common things that I always get whenever I send a contract is, 
am I giving my rights away? Because they look at language that says, you know, you're licensing this video or this photo for use uh, for distribution worldwide in all media in perpetuity. And they get always get tripped up on the in perpetuity prong because they think mm-hmm. that it's a surrender of copyright ownership. And part of my part of my job is to, to be involved in that hand-holding, that clarification to help guide and give them that peace of mind of knowing that we value, uh, you know, their, their, you know, we, we value their IP so much that we want to use it, but we are aware that that is theirs and theirs only, and we would never do anything to inhibit or endanger them from ever going out to the free market and licensing that out elsewhere. So, you know, it, it, when, when you mentioned, when you mentioned just that point, it's like, yeah, that that's, that's almost part of my job every single day. I have to give those assurances and I have to, uh, essentially, you know, essentially not just be a rights and clearances manager, but I have, I have to integrate empathy and, you know, uh, you know, speak plain English because people get triggered or weary when they see shall or you know, they're in here in all these archaic words, you know, I'm here, here I am to break it down and, you know, make it as easy and simple as I possibly can. Which is great, which I advocate. I mean, there's a great book. I talk about it all the time. It's called Richard White Explain English for Lawyers. And I highly <laughs> recommend it to everyone. Yeah, that is a great um, book. Because, actually. yeah, we want to. Um, all right. One more thing. As you sit generously wearing your Pace sweatshirt, you see branding is everything. Yes, <laughs> so absolutely. Already, you know. But tell us just for a moment how you became a, an adjunct professor at, at New York Law School. I know it's that you're, it's your alma mater, but um, just yeah. so I, the folks out there listening can get an idea of how to do that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I love mentoring people, especially students, because I often found that when I was a student, I didn't get necessarily that love, that one-on-one mentoring that I craved for so desperately. And, you know, I guess, you know, I, I experienced ghosting in one way or another when I was a student, because I would email lawyers asking for just five minutes or 10 minutes of their time over a cup of coffee to find out how they broke in. And oftentimes it just turned out that they would never respond. So I, I just kept plugging away and, you know, scraped by and figured out who I could try to get in touch with. But when I graduated law school, I said to myself, I would never become that type of person that if ever a student reached out to me on LinkedIn, or if the school sent me to send a student to me, I would give myself that time and effort and, you know, uh, you know, help them with, with whatever question they had. So before the pandemic and before I started teaching, part of my whole shtick was I would invite them to ABC News. I would I would give them a tour of our facility and I would treat them to a cup of coffee. And we would have I would I literally carved out an hour, almost always an hour and a half out of my time just to talk to them and literally hear about everything they had a concern about. And I often found that doing that really drew this interest to, to help students And I thought that one way to help students is to teach them, to give them the knowledge that I had learned throughout my time working at Greenlight, working at ABC News, being in the real world. And, you know, whether that's, you know, teaching them contracts and more specific in the realm of IP licensing or, you know, just, you know, good lawyering, whatever, whatever that it would entail. I wanted to figure out how to get my foot in the door. So I had applied or I had sent my resume rather essentially cold emailed. Uh, Fordham University and a bunch of other universities in the area that I knew had pretty robust communications programs. So, so Pace, uh, you know, St. John's, a bunch of others. And um, 
more more often than not, I just got a thanks, but no thanks. But even Fordham told me that I needed to have prior teaching experience in order to do that. But they had suggested maybe, you know, finding an opportunity in a community college. So I had applied to community colleges that offered some type of communications program. And I was strictly thinking about the undergrad level because I didn't want to shoot too high, you know, mm-hmm. think law school just yet. I was trying to be humble about it. And, uh, <laughs> and you've been out of law school how many years when this when you still so this, yeah, so this is about five years after law school okay or, uh, wow. maybe, maybe a little shorter maybe like four three and a half four years that's ambitious okay <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah so I um so I nothing was clicking so I said you know what what do I have to lose let me reach out to New York law school so I had I had a very good contact in uh career services and uh you know basically I asked her you know look I I I wanted to avoid this, but here I am asking, is there any opportunity for me to be an adjunct, maybe teaching contract drafting or something to that effect at New York Law School? So she said, let me think about it. Let me see how it goes. She had connected me me with the uh, Dean of Adjunct Faculty Engagement. And you know, he and I really clicked. He had invited me to his corporations class to guest lecture for a full hour and 40 on IP. It was the only time I probably sweat and uh, defecated into my pants out of nerves. I was so <laughs> nervous, so nervous. It felt like one of, that. all over again. <laughs> and um, I, uh, yeah, it, it, I, I did it. I survived. And a, a lot of the students loved the presentation. And essentially, so that was like October of 2018, February, February, 2019. He calls me to tell me that the entertainment law professor was resigning and that I was selected as the choice to take his place. And those wow. are big because That's the entertainment huge. law professor, Professor Zablotsky, who taught at New York Law School, taught the course for 25 years. So oh, my goodness. Wow. Wow. So I willingly accepted. I went through the whole approval process. I started teaching entertainment law. And halfway through the semester, I ran into the uh, the uh, dean of the registrar. And he said to me, you know, we're looking for an IP professor for the spring semester. I really don't want to look at resumes. Do you want to teach IP? And I was like, yes, absolutely. So, (laughs) um, so as much as I love entertainment and entertainment law, I love intellectual property that much more. So I've, I've now, this is now my third year teaching and I've essentially, you know, try to keep my teaching of intellectual property and even entertainment at its baseline as, as simple as I can. Um, you know, I, I really don't employ cold calling because I feel like it's, it's, you know, it's up to the students to voluntarily decide how they want to participate, but the mm-hmm. material is engaging enough that everybody wants to participate in some capacity. Right. And I, um, and so, and I, you know, I, I, I keep it nice and simple. Uh, I, instead of teaching like the old legalese, I employ a method called teaching super sexy AF legal rules. It's like <laughs> have a memorable way of memorizing all the rules. I have it for copyright, for trademarks, for patents, for everything under the sun. And my students really love it. I use memes. I use videos. I use photos and I keep it chill because I, I don't want students. I want students to feel like this is an experience and not just another law school class. Mm-hmm. And essentially I've used all that I've taught in the law, in the, in the classroom and I've extended it into Instagram. So I kind of rebooted my social media presence because now I have uh, an Instagram profile called the IP professor. And I basically do videos, you know, informational, educational in nature. I dance in a, in a couple of them, all in the name of promoting my love and appreciation for intellectual property and to bestow that knowledge to the next generation of change agents. And I love doing it every single day. It's so much fun. And, um, you know, as each semester passes and as new things develop in pop culture and everyday life, it just intrigues me more how I can implement that in my class. So it, it's definitely a motivator. 
That's wonderful. All right. So I, unfortunately, we're out of time. But here are my three takeaways from our discussion. Number one, distinguish yourself, make yourself special, commit to your area of the law, like with your blogs. Number two is um, enjoy the lawyering and know how important you are to the bigger scheme of what's going on. And three, network, network, network. Yes. Absolutely. So um, thank you. I, I could talk to you for hours, but <laughs> I won't too, give you that long. Maybe, um, it's really maybe, been maybe a we'll have an unplugged podcast. Yes, <laughs> I think we have to do. Yeah, exactly. That's a great idea. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. I, can students reach out to you via? Yes. In, okay. Yeah. So they can reach out to me on LinkedIn. Uh, obviously, you know, we'll post it on our liner notes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So so you can reach out there. Um, but if you follow me on, if you want to connect with me, I'm on Instagram at the IP professor. I'm also on Twitter at the same uh, handle and uh, also on TikTok. I'm slowly growing that account. But anyway, if you anyone reaches out to me on any of those platforms, I'm more than happy to chat and uh, give you any tips and, and tricks on how I broke it. Terrific. Thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you, Leslie. And that's my conversation with Tony Iliacostas. I encourage you to follow Tony on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at the IP professor. His posts are entertaining, really entertaining, and informative. A reminder, all of our episodes are free, are free, and many are super helpful for understanding the law. You can find all of our episodes on most podcast platforms or go to www.lawtofact.com. Best of luck on finals, and we'll see you next semester on Law to Fact.